Esther Williams breaks her neck, finds fulfillment post-stardom, becomes a godmother to an Olympic sport, and proves this million-dollar mermaid could act. From 1956, it's the unguarded moment. I'm Shannon. Thank you for listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. The Unguarded Moment was the second of three dry films, as Esther Williams herself would call them, that she made during her career. Perhaps the most dramatic role of her years in Hollywood, Esther's portrayal of a super cute high school teacher being stalked by a deranged student was a far cry from the glittering swimsuits and extravagant swimming numbers audiences had come to expect from her films. Reactions to the movie would be mixed, but I must say, seeing Esther in a dramatic role at this stage of her career really underscores just what an actress she'd become, and how underappreciated her ease and comfort on screen were. Behind the scenes, Esther would find her seemingly perfect world turned upside down with the waning popularity of aqua musicals and the financial ruin brought on by the irresponsible spending of husband number two, Ben Gage. Esther's cloistered existence with third husband, Fernando Lamas, would also offer its unique challenges as she adjusted to life post-stardom. But our girl Esther would come out on top, find Mr. Wright, begin a successful line of swimwear, and become a godmother to an Olympic sport in the process. Let's get right to the plot. Esther is Lois Conway a small-town high school music teacher and cheerleading instructor who's cuter than all the other students at school. As we'd expect from the athletic and graceful Esther Williams, Lois even puts the cheer team to shame with her demonstration of cheer moves at the start of the film, our only taste of Esther's aqua musical past. The single Miss Conway is clearly beloved by her students, and it seems she lives a rather charmed life as the favorite teacher at school, until she discovers a super creepy note in her purse about the quote-unquote beautiful music she and the mystery writer of the note could make together. The note is clearly from one of her students, and Lois initially decides to just ignore it, not wanting to get anyone in trouble. She's also certain that she won't be getting any more of these notes. Well, she's wrong. The notes continue and even escalate in their creepiness. Finally, Lois receives a note from the unstable mystery admirer, instructing her to meet him in the locker room at night. Confident Lois decides to go meet the guy alone at the designated time, convinced she can talk him to his senses. While she is wrong, again. In the locker room with this creeper, Lois realizes she's trying to reason with an unreasonable person, and still unaware in the dark who this guy is, she tries to make a run for it. He manages to tear her dress in the process, and Lois drops her purse, but she makes it out before anything else happens. The police get involved after spotting the emotionally frazzled Lois running home. She's brought in for questioning and gives Lieutenant Harry Graham, George Nader, a talking to when he pushes her too hard. Watching Esther's Lois tell Lieutenant Graham not to shout at her is something I totally see Esther doing in real life, by the way. 
There's clearly some romantic tension in the room, and Graham's worry that Lois will be next in the string of murders recently plaguing the town is obviously more than professional. Then something freaky happens. Lois gets home only to discover that her purse, the one she dropped in the locker room, is sitting on her coffee table. She quickly realizes that her assailant is in her home right now. Lois convinces the kid that if he leaves now, while she's got the lights out and the door open, she won't try to see who he is. The kid takes her up on the generous offer, but as he runs out of the house, a car almost hits him, and the headlights reveal the stalker's face to Lois. It's Leonard Bennett, John Saxon, the school's star football player. Torn between the welfare of other potential victims, yet not wanting to ruin Leonard's future, Lois decides to tell the school's principal about the attack. But Principal Pendleton, Les Tremaine, doesn't want to believe her, as Leonard is the school's chance at glory this football season. Pendleton invites Leonard to his office while Lois is there to discuss the situation, but it's clear he doesn't plan to do anything about it. So now Leonard knows that Lois knows that he's her stalker, and he begins ruining her reputation around school, saying it was Lois who put the moves on him. This, coupled with Lieutenant Graham's fears that Leonard is the town's murderer, and that if Lois doesn't do something now, Leonard will soon murder other women, convinces her to take action. Leonard is brought into the police station for questioning, but won't confess to anything, even making up a bogus story to explain his fingerprints in Lois's home from when he returned her purse and stole the nasty notes he wrote her. Leonard's father, Mr. Bennett, Edward Andrews, soon gets involved and begins threatening Lois. The night before Lois is to go before the school board to defend her case against Leonard's accusations that she's the aggressor, Lois discovers Mr. Bennett in her bedroom, watching her undress. Understandably freaked, Lois somehow manages to remain calm as she tries to defuse the situation. It's clear that Mr. Bennett is the man who's been murdering women around town, and that he intends to make Lois his next victim so she can't discredit his son. All of a sudden, Bennett goes nuts and lunges for her. While Lois tries to escape Bennett's grasp, Lieutenant Graham luckily stops by to check on her. Hearing her screams, he breaks in the door and sees Bennett, who makes a run for it. A chase ensues, and Bennett almost makes it into his home before falling off a trellis that he's climbed. The fall kills him, and the town is safe from a continuance of his murderous spree. It's a happy ending as Leonard confesses to stalking Lois, thus restoring her reputation and position at school. Leonard then joins the military and sends updates to Lieutenant Graham of his progress. It seems Leonard's going to turn out all right. And of course, Lois and Lieutenant Graham get together and enjoy a milkshake at the local diner as the film ends. The Unguarded Moment would be Esther Williams' first non-swimming film since The Hoodlum Saint in 1946. And if I were Esther, I probably would have welcomed the change. As the only movie star who could do what she did, MGM and her various directors placed impractical and often dangerous demands on Esther's shoulders. Quote, whether it was diving out of trees or handling an outrigger, it took every bit of the courage and discipline of a champion to do all the things the studio kept inventing for me to do. MGM figured anything that had to do with water was swimming, and that therefore Esther could handle it no problem. Part actress, part stunt woman, I knew I was doing all this on my own, and that's how it was always going to be. 
unquote. Here's the short list of the most shocking of Esther's injuries and near-death experiences in the water over the years. While filming 1950s Pagan Love Song in Kauai, Esther discovered she was pregnant. So all of her quote-unquote chancy swimming scenes had to be shot ASAP before she got too far along. One of these dangerous scenes required Esther to row in a double outrigger canoe in the ocean, at a beach with a steep drop between the ocean floor and the shoreline. Worse still, the ocean bottom at this particular spot was covered with dangerous black coral, which looks like, and can cause injuries similar to, broken glass. Black coral abrasions also have an increased rate of infection and scarring. Who wouldn't want to navigate a canoe in the ocean while pregnant over this stuff? Of course, the waves on the day Esther was to shoot this scene were particularly large. But the director didn't seem to care, so out Esther paddled in the outrigger only to find herself, quote, perched on the crest of a wave. I looked down and saw there was no water beneath me at all, just the dreaded black coral on the ocean floor. I rolled myself into a ball and clung to the side of the outrigger, holding on for dear life. The canoe cracked against the coral, splintering the lower outrigger. At a moment like that, you can't even pray. I looked down at the mutilating glassy rock and figured I'd be lucky if I were only scarred for life. I would lose my baby." Unquote. Luckily, Esther was tossed from the canoe and a geyser of water from a blowhole in the coral shot her up and away from the coral into the ocean water. It would be the first of several life-threatening situations MGM didn't think twice about before sending their stunt woman swimming star into the water. In Esther's next film, 1951's Texas Carnival, there was a fantasy swimming number where Esther appears in the dream of her leading man, Howard Keel. In the dream, Esther is swimming around his hotel room, which, of course, is now underwater. The darkened, underwater set was complete with the walls, floor, and window of Keel's room in the film. And, oh yeah, as Esther would say in her autobiography, quote, some idiot also put a ceiling on the room, unquote. What a great idea. Only a small trap door was left for Esther to open to get in and out of this set, which was effectively a black box full of water that she was expected to swim in. After a rehearsal of the scene, Esther needed to come up for air, but quote, the black walls made it impossible to see the hatch and the trapdoor from the inside. I kept swimming around, trying various spots in the ceiling, but every place I tried, I hit solid wood. I couldn't see any way to get out because it was wall, wall, ceiling. I was trapped with no air, unquote. No one on set realized that Esther was running out of oxygen and about to drown, literally right in front of their eyes. One guy was eating a sandwich, another was on the phone. Finally, the prop man walked by, saw what was happening, dove in, and saved Esther's life. That was Esther's second near-death experience over the course of her career. Esther's most harrowing brush with death over the years probably occurred during the filming of Million Dollar Mermaid in 1952 when our girl was expected to swan dive off a tiny platform from 50 feet above the pool, wearing a sequined full bodysuit, turban, and a heavy gold crown on her head. Doesn't that sound safe? Esther describes the thought process that went through her head as she realized the dangerousness of her situation mid-dive. Quote, Hurtling down, I suddenly realized what was going to happen next. The gold crown on my head. 
Instead of being made with something pliable like cardboard, it was lightweight aluminum, a lot stronger and less flexible than my neck. I hit the water with tremendous force. The impact snapped my head back. I heard something pop in my neck. I knew instantly that I was in big trouble." Unquote. Unable to move her legs and barely able to tread water with her almost paralyzed arms, Esther worried she'd never get out of the pool alive. For immediately after she hit the water, lunch break was called, and everybody left the set. Luckily, Esther's wardrobe lady was still there, and finally realizing the seriousness of the situation, ran to get a few members of the crew to help Esther out of the pool and to the hospital. The dive broke three vertebrae in the back of Esther's neck, quote, I'd come as close to snapping my spinal cord and becoming a paraplegic as you could without actually succeeding, unquote. Esther lived in a full-body cast for six months as she healed, but those three broken vertebrae ended up fusing together, quote, I had headaches for a long time afterwards. I still do. Whenever I'm stressed out, I get a headache from that solid piece of bone that grew in the back of my neck. I was just lucky that it didn't turn out worse." Unquote. This close call during Million Dollar Mermaid was enough to make Esther wisely turn down a few very dangerous stunts in the future. After that full-body cast, there was no way she'd say yes to Busby Berkeley's request that she dive from a swing hanging from a helicopter while pregnant in 1953's Easy to Love. She'd also refuse when MGM asked her to jump off a cliff into the ocean while on horseback for Jupiter's Darling. So yes, maybe Esther was ready to get out of the pool after years of harrowingly close calls. And really, she didn't have much of a choice. After the disappointing box office return of her last MGM Aqua musical, Jupiter's Darling, Esther found herself being pushed out of the studio by Dory Sherry the man who replaced Louis B. Mayer as head of production in 1951. Slowly, things at MGM changed under Sherry's leadership. Sherry wasn't into musicals, glamour, or big movie stars. Which meant he wasn't into Esther Williams. Esther quite literally represented all the things Sherry would move MGM away from in the ensuing years. To get Esther out of MGM after the failure of Jupiter's Darling, Sherry began offering her exclusively terrible roles in terrible films. And as per her contract, if Esther turned these roles down, she'd be put on unpaid suspension. Worse still, if Esther simply left MGM, the studio wouldn't have to pay her the $3 million she'd earned as part of her deferred payment plan. This plan stipulated that a certain amount of Esther's salary would be withheld over the years, a built-in retirement plan, and that she'd get that money only at the end of her contract. Failure to complete the contract meant the MGM wouldn't have to pay her this money that she'd technically already earned. So Esther had a hard choice to make. Stick around, accept the terrible roles, and collect her $3 million in a few years, or leave MGM and the money behind, but salvage her career and keep her dignity. Can you imagine making such a tough decision? In the end, Esther knew the lack of fulfillment in her work would be stifling, and so one day, she simply left MGM. Quote, I packed all my terry cloth robes, my tired, saggy bathing suits in which the elastic had died, and drove towards the east gate. At the gate, the guard on duty smiled at me as he had for 14 years every morning I came to work. And off I drove. I didn't say goodbye to anyone else. There was no point. Everyone I cared about was already gone. I heard Gable left the same way. Unquote. 
In addition to being Esther's first dramatic role in a decade, The Unguarded Moment would also be her first film away from MGM. And in fact, when Universal Studios offered Esther the role of Lois Conway, she was more than a bit surprised. Quote, I thought it was a curious choice for Universal to offer me the lead in a dry psychological thriller, and I wasn't sure the public would accept me without my glittering crowns and sparkly swimsuits. Nonetheless, Universal offered me $200,000, which was more than I ever made for a single film at MGM, in or out of the water. Unquote. So Esther accepted the role. The rapidity with which her husband, Ben Gage, spent or gambled her money away meant Esther literally couldn't afford to say no. The screenplay of The Unguarded Moment was written by C.A. McKnight. Should that name be familiar to you? Well, no, but it was the pen name of a star any classic Hollywood fan definitely knows. Rosalind Russell. How cool is that? Roz used her mother's maiden name as her pen name and actually completed the screenplay for The Unguarded Moment in 1951. And as Esther writes in her autobiography, Roz told Esther that she'd originally written the role for herself but got quote-unquote too old by the time the film was made. Russell would give her stamp of approval to Esther in her portrayal of Lois Conway, calling her performance quote-unquote very good. Roz would make light of her screenplay in her autobiography saying, quote, I wish I could tell you it was gone with the wind, unquote. But the fact is, Russell's story effectively covered important subject material, sexual assault and the treatment of women in the workplace that many were just not discussing in the 1950s. Well done, Roz. Unfortunately for Esther, that $200,000 that had been her incentive to make the unguarded moment would also alert the IRS to husband Ben Gage's shady financial dealings over the years. How? Well, Ben simply didn't report the income, a move guaranteed, in Esther's words, to get their attention. When Esther returned to the U.S. after filming Raw Wind in Eden in Italy, she discovered that in her absence, the IRS had audited the Gage family and put a lien on their home. Esther would spend the next several years paying off the $750,000 the IRS calculated was owed them. That's the equivalent of $7 million today. Esther would later say in her autobiography that, quote, I probably should have done a better job of policing our family finances, but looking back, I suppose when you find yourself using the word policing in connection with the activities of your spouse, it should be a red flag, unquote. Perhaps needless to say, this was the last straw for Esther, and she and Ben officially separated in November of 1957. Esther wouldn't fare much better with her next marriage to Fernando Lamas, but at least the guy didn't spend all her money. During her years with Fernando, Esther would live a cloistered existence. Fernando's insistence that she, quote, stop being Esther Williams, unquote, and dedicate her time solely to him, is why I think Esther didn't have a successful second phase of her career after proving herself an actress in the unguarded moment. Fernando simply wouldn't have allowed Esther to make films. Comedian Don Rickles would jokingly ask Esther one evening during her years with Fernando how she liked it in the nunnery. But the question really wasn't that far from the truth. Fernando expected Esther to give up her career, and even her children, for him. I've got to share another sassy Esther Williams anecdote with you. And my favorite sassy Esther anecdote from her years with Fernando is when she had to bribe a cop to get Fernando's dinner home in time. 
During her years with Fernando, Esther would spend the day with her children at Ben's home, where he never was, make dinner there, and say goodbye to the kids in time to bring Fernando's meal back to their home. One evening, Esther, excellent cook that she was, prepared veal Milanese. On the way home, her self-described erratic driving as she adjusted the foil on the roasting pan caught the attention of a policeman, and she was pulled over. The officer asked to see Esther's license, but was quickly distracted by the delicious smells of garlic and rosemary emanating from the car. He asked Esther what the dish was. She replied, quote, It's veal Milanese. The foil was slipping, and I didn't want the gravy to spill, unquote. The policeman complimented her and then asked if he could taste the dish. Esther's response, quote, Sure, you can taste. You can even have one. But then you can't give me a ticket. You can only give me a warning. I wondered whether this could be considered bribing a policeman, unquote. How awesome is that? You've got to love Esther's confidence, sass, and daring. Fernando Lamas got his veal Milanese that night and every ounce of Esther's attention until his death in 1982. With Fernando's passing, Esther would re-enter public life and, in her own words, have to figure out what to do with the rest of her life. And as it would turn out, her most rewarding years were just ahead. Esther would finally enjoy spending time with her children without having to juggle the demands of Fernando, and reveled in her new role of grandmother with the birth of her daughter Susie's son. And at the end of 1983, Esther would meet Edward Bell, the man who would prove to be her Mr. Wright. The two remained happily married until Esther's passing in 2013. Bell would be instrumental in helping Esther get her swimwear line up and running. All those years of testing swimsuits for her films, discovering what fabrics worked best in the water and what cuts were most flattering certainly paid off. Esther's gorgeous swimwear and accessory line is still successful and stylish today. One of Esther's greatest legacies and rewards from this time of her life was unquestionably the recognition of synchronized swimming as an Olympic sport. After she introduced the world to the magic of swimming pretty in 1944's Bathing Beauty, synchronized swimming meets began popping up all over the country. Esther would receive fan mail throughout her Hollywood years from young women asking her how to swim pretty and how to start a water ballet group. With the help of her mother, Esther graciously responded with packets of information answering all these questions, even detailing the technical aspects of her signature underwater moves. Esther's example and generosity of time no doubt contributed to synchronized swimming being recognized as an event at the 1955 Pan American Games and as a demonstration sport at the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne, Australia. In 1984, synchronized swimming was finally recognized as an Olympic sport, and it seemed only fitting to have Esther, the undisputed godmother of the sport, join the NBC Sports Broadcasting team as a commentator at the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Esther was a joy to watch and listen to, bringing great insight, charm, and her signature charisma to her commentary. And if you head on over to my website, macaronsandmimi.com, and search for The Unguarded Moment, I have links to YouTube videos of Esther's commentary. As you'd expect, Esther is just as beautiful and stylish in 1984 as she was in her MGM musicals. Highlighting Esther Williams, one of my role models since childhood, has been a complete joy this month. 
I feel so lucky to have grown up with Esther and her aqua musicals. The enchantment of seeing Esther gracefully glide through the water is just as powerful today as it was for nine-year-old me, newly introduced to Esther in her beautiful films. I know there are many who feel the same way. One thing's for sure, there will never be another Esther Williams. And what a privilege it is to have been touched by her magic. And that wraps up our glorious month with Esther Williams. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com. And join me next week on Vanguard of Hollywood as we begin a new month with a woman I've been dying to write about for years, a talented and tragic trailblazer in Hollywood, the beautiful Miss Dorothy Dandridge.